Sabah al khair. Everybody, what's the response? Sabah al nur. Okay, so I say Sabah al khair. Ah, excellent. There are so many great things about Goshen College. Most of them will not be talked about this morning. But we know what they are, even if sometimes we take them for granted. But among other things, we have a rich curriculum that offers students opportunities to thrive and to grow, that challenges students and faculty to be lifelong learners. And through the general education program, now called the Goshen Corps, we embody the vision of liberal arts education that is deeply committed to a broad, interdisciplinary learning program that produces informed, articulate people of faith who work and live in a world struggling with conflict and violence, with racism, secularism, corrupt religion, and dysfunctional politics. But the true strength of Goshen College is you, students who come to pursue knowledge, skills, and social conscience in addition to a degree, who know that a well-rounded education is not reducible to what happens in the classroom, and who are even willing to go beyond the expansive constraints of the curriculum itself to pursue a dream. And such is the group of students who will be speaking with you and sharing this morning. Um, to do that, I'm going to uh, introduce uh, the leader and guide of the group, Marcella Zuchby. Uh, and she took the group to spend uh, the summer uh, based in Bethlehem with her family. Marcella's Palestinian, also a junior here. And um, she has, for the last three years, been the assistant for the Arabic language uh, classes, has been instrumental in getting a Middle East, uh, uh, what do we call it, the Middle East uh, Club? Uh, Middle East Club, what is it called? <laughs> Middle East uh, Club. Yeah, the Middle East Club, of course, <laughs> of which uh, I'm the sponsor. Uh, <laughs> Uh, has also been engaged in many ways as a campus leader, and she will introduce the group and the experience, and we're looking forward to what they have to offer. So, tfaddali, habibati. Ahlan wa sahlan. Welcome. My name is Marcel Zurbi. I was born in Jerusalem, and I spent most of my childhood in Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Unfortunately, I can't go to Jerusalem anymore, but that is another story. My family has been living in Palestine for centuries. My ancestors, the Ghassassina, ruled the Middle East between the year 220 to 638 AD. The Ghassassina tribe was very influential and most of the Christians in the West Bank have come from the Ghassassina tribe. The oral history of my family, found in Acts 2, verses 10 through 11, says that we are descendants from the Arabs that were converted by the disciples that received the Holy Spirit in the upper room in Jerusalem. The written, his, the, yeah, the written history of my family can be found in church records in Bethlehem, which date back to the 16th century. These are the oldest surviving records. Some people in America ask me when my family converted to Christianity. I smile and I say, my great-great-great-great-great-grandma used to babysit Jesus. <laughs> my house is built on the caves that my ancestors used to live in. This is a picture of the cave. 
And the cave turns into a shelter when the Israeli army decides to bomb us. But on regular days, it's used as our hangout. As you can see, there are couches and a TV. My extended family is part of the Farahiyya clan. In, Farahiyya in Arabic means joy, so we're the happy family. In Bethlehem, there are almost 4,000 members of my clan. Some people say that those who have history are lucky, but my history is sort of a burden. A Palestinian poet, Mahmoud Darwish, talks about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict as a clash of narratives, but here is one narrative that is more objective. Zionism started. In 1897, Theodore Herzl proposes a recognized homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. 1917, the Balfour Declaration pledges British support for the establishment of the Jewish national homeland in Palestine. 1918, World War I ends. Britain gains control of Palestine. 1919, First Palestinian National Congress demands independence from Britain. 1922, First British Census of Palestine shows total population of 757,182 people and 11% were Jewish. 1939, British promises an independent Palestinian state, which as you can tell, they didn't follow through. 1947, UN partition proposes a division of Palestine with two states. At that time, Jewish land ownership was only 6%, and yet the UN gave them 56% of the land, while Arab land ownership was 94%, and they got 44% of the land. In 1948, um, Jewish military groups massacre 245 Palestinians in the village of Deir Yassin. In 1948, a day that is known to me as the catastrophe and other Palestinians as the Nakba, that is when the state of Israel was proclaimed. Jewish forces level 531 Palestinian villages in order to create Israel, more than 750,000 Palestinians became refugees. In 1967, Israel begins military occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip of Palestine, Sinai of Egypt, and Gulen Heights of Syria. And as you can tell, this is the map from 1947, and so far in 1949, that's how much uh, Israel took. So the red is the Arab territories. Palestinian, oh, and this is a map of the wall. The red line is the wall, and it was built on 80% of Palestinian land. And um, so I ask you this question. If you were to build a fence between you and your neighbor, where would you build the fence on? On your property or on theirs? The Palestinian population consists of roughly around 13 million people. More than half are refugees. There are fourth-generation Palestinian refugees living in camps, living in tents still in, camp, in the UN camps. 
And this is a map that shows how much land has been confiscated. The green is, is, what, is what land is left for Palestinians. For me, the Nakba, the catastrophe, hasn't stopped. Israel continues to Judaize the West Bank. There are 600,000 settlers in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, and that is illegal by international law. And yet, Israel's plan is to have more than one million settlers in the West Bank. Israel has built a segregation wall. This wall is five times the length and two times the height of the Berlin Wall. It is 760 kilometers in length. 80% of the wall is built on Palestinian land. And that's a picture of the wall with um, one of our group members, Hannah, standing next to it. The gross national product in Palestine is less than $1,000 per person, while in Israel it is $27,000 per person. Dollars per person. Yet the United States provides Israel with $8.2 million of aid every day. This is my reality and other Palestinians' reality. I was born in a land that people tell me is not my own. Many politicians and people deny my existence. Because of this segregation wall, I am separated from my family and friends. I can no longer go to Jerusalem. I can no longer go to church Easter Sunday in Jerusalem. I am denied freedom based on my race. I am denied water. I have been harassed and terrorized countless times by Israeli soldiers. I am living in the largest open air prison in the world. In airports, I am always randomly selected for searches. Many of my friends have been murdered by the Israeli army. If you want to know more stories, just come and ask me. I'd love to share, share them with you. Now, on a later note, you may ask, how did I end up taking eight of my peers home with me to Palestine? Well, it all started during May term 2009. Krista and I had stayed up countless nights talking till 2 a.m. about life, love, and other mysteries. When one night at 2 a.m. I asked, I said, Krista, you should come home with me. And she said, okay. And the following morning, an email was sent out to many of our peers inviting them to come on this adventure with us. We spent the last year, my sophomore year, having meetings, sort of like orientation sessions, where I informed the group about the cultural language and some possible activities. Then I coordinated with WEAM Conflict Resolution Center that our group would volunteer with and some other activities that Hannah will talk about. This was a wonderful group to take, and I was so blessed to have these wonderful people come with me. If you don't know them, I hope you get a chance to. And any of you are welcome to come home with me anytime. I will be going home June 2013, so if you want to come home with me, just email me and we'll make it happen. Oh, and please hold all applause till the end, and here's an announcement. Uh, Calvin College is having a Palestinian awareness event and wants to coordinate with us and Huntington uh, University. So if you are interested, tomorrow at 12 at Java we will meet. And if you're interested, please email Jacob Putnam uh, for a headcount. There will be free lunch there. Good morning. I'm Luke Skadshock. 
Um, now that Marcel has given some of the background history of the conflict, uh, we thought it might be good to kind of bring you up to speed on kind of the current situation, give you some keyword vocab about Palestine to describe some of the situations we encountered through stories and through examples. Um, but first, I'd like to take some time to go over some of the main points of the conflict. Um, one of the main pieces is the Israeli settlements. Um, Marcel already mentioned this before, the settlers. Um, uh, this particular image is of Har Homa. Um, it's an Israeli settlement located directly from, across from Bethlehem and is easily visible from the north side of the city. Settlements are present throughout the West Bank, um, usually located on the highest point in the area. You can kind of see how this one is up on the hill there, um, with their own roads and utilities leading in from Israel. Um, and this next image is kind of an overhead snapshot of the settlements around Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Essentially, populated Palestinian territories in yellow. Um, the settlements are in red, and if your eyes are pretty good, you can probably also spot the red line running through. That would be the separation wall. Palestinians and Israelis are restricted from moving through each other's territory, and although in reality the Israelis can pass through, there's nothing more than a sign stopping them, but Palestinians are physically blocked from moving through Israeli territory. We could easily cross through boundaries for, by waving our American passports to the guards, but not even this was always the case. Um, for one particular crossing, we experienced what was probably a more constant reality than what, we've been, what we had been exposed to. It was earlier in the morning at the Bethlehem-Jerusalem checkpoint, and the border police had stopped letting people through. Um, this in itself was not an unusual occurrence. Um, we had built in time for this. Yet after more than an hour after arriving, the gate was still not unlocked, and a large crowd had started to form behind us. The Palestinians around us started to get agitated and started to press towards the gate while a young soldier overhead with an M16 is trying to calm the crowd down. Finally, the barrier was unlocked and the crowd started to press towards the gate, but our group was right in the middle. Multiple members of our group started to feel very uncomfortable and as such a large crowd began to press down towards this front of the line. We finally all managed to pass through, but the experience was still stark contrast to what we, with our privileged status, were used to. I'm Hannah Eberly, um, and on a much lighter note of things that we did this summer. Um, one month, during the month of July, our group actually helped with a summer camp at WEAM, which is an organization run by Marcel's father. Um, it's a, the WEAM is a mediation center that seeks to bring nonviolent peace between local Palestinians, and then on a broader scale, between Palestinians and Israelis. Um, so during this month of July, summer camp took place Monday through Friday um, for kids that came probably 30 to 50 um, and ages 4 to 13. So our first week we were all ready for camp. We had some yoga planned. We had crafts. We had some outdoor games for them. And we got there and we realized not only couldn't we not speak Arabic so well, um, but structure just really, we were a little too organized. Um, so three Palestinian adults were also there at camp every day, and they helped a lot with communication, um, and were just able to, you know, pitch in and fill in gaps that we had. Probably after the first week, we decided this structure idea wasn't so good, and it was better to learn to live into the culture and to go with the flow. Um, so at that point, we just spent a lot of free time with the kids, sometimes doing crafts, sometimes playing games, um, 
And then also other things that we did every Wednesday, we ended up going to a pool as well just to hang out and that was a fun time for all of us. Camp ended at the end of July with a brief program where the kids sang a few songs, um, recited some poetry, and we danced Debka, which is a traditional Palestinian dance. Another large piece of our summer um, was Marcel was really eager to introduce us to her Palestinian family and to her friends, and so there were a lot of contacts that we were able to get to know through that. Um, one piece was we would often take walks to Wiam, and so that, as that was our main way of transportation, we'd see a lot of people along the way and say hi. But there were definitely a few select Palestinians with whom our group spent more time. Um, sorry. Some of these people um, pictured up here is Marcel's Aunt Lorette, and Aunt Lorette taught us how to make so much Palestinian food. Um, really great food that takes a lot of time to prepare. Um, you'll see us up there pictured making shish barak, which is also called cat ears. Um, similar to um, homemade ravioli, but definitely takes a lot of time. Um, and then another aunt and uncle of Marcel's lived in walking distance, and so they had five kids between the ages of 15 and 30, and we became close friends with them, going over back and forth between houses, um, eating ice cream together, cooking food, singing around campfires, and gazing at stars. Um, these relationships that were relationships that meant a lot to us, and we were sad to say goodbye when we left Palestine. I'm Krista Kaufman, and I'm going to share from a journal entry from when we were in Palestine. We had to go through a checkpoint to go to the western wall of the temple. All of the white people in our group walked through without Israeli soldiers requesting any kind of identification. But immediately, the soldiers stopped and pulled aside our Palestinian host cousin, George. Some of the most blatant racial profiling I've ever seen and I'm from the US. I confronted the soldier, a guy who, like most Israeli soldiers, was probably in his lower 20s, maybe 18 or 19, probably younger than me, with an M16. I confronted him and asked why he would not let my friend through. He did not give me an answer. We tried again at another entrance. Again, the Israeli soldiers would not let George through. I held my hands tightly together in front of me to try to contain my anger. George lives in Jerusalem and yet cannot walk around his own city. Again, I asked the soldier, why? I got little response from him, mostly repeating, he cannot go through. Finally, I said, you won't let Palestinians go through, an almost imperceptible nod. So it's segregated, no response. You keep people separated and restrict where they can go, a segregated society. People here don't have equal rights. No response. End of conversation with soldier. Why did this feel so familiar? Oh, right. Signs on water fountains in the US marked white and colored. A familiar story. I was not being brave in confronting this soldier. I felt little fear because I was aware of my white privilege backed even further with my US passport. 
I knew that the risk of suffering any consequences, such as being put in jail, interrogated, or beaten, were drastically reduced simply because of the color of my skin. I could do and say things that were out of the question for most Palestinians. I had more rights in the land that belongs to my Palestinian friends than they do. While talking with Hannah one night about the cruelty of the conflict we were seeing around us, she observed the reality that in this situation, humanity turns on itself. We do not only turn on each other, for turning on each other is turning on one's own self. Almost hidden amongst the crowded graffiti in the apartheid wall, someone had painted a Palestinian flag with lyrics from over the Rhine. There is something to be said for tenacity. I'll hold on to you if you hold on to me. We are all connected. Essentially, we are each other, though at times we forget. My name is Grant Miller. Throughout our time in Palestine, we could clearly see many of the injustices around us. But because of our privileged status, we rarely experienced them directly. However, very, one very tangible reality of the occupation that we faced was the water restrictions in Bethlehem. 85% of the water in the West Bank is taken and redistributed to Israel and the surrounding settlements. Because this water is taken and Israel has outlawed the creation of new wells in Palestine, the water is only turned on every couple weeks or so. To cope with this situation, families have large tanks on the roof so that when the water is on, they may fill up their tank in preparation for the upcoming days without. This is a photo of the tanks on top of our roof. Uh, they provided water for roughly 10 families. However, these tanks do run out, and so families are forced to borrow water from neighbors or buy some off the black market. Because of this, we are extremely cautious to use as little water as possible. We put a bucket in the sink to catch all the gray water so we could flush the toilet. Clothes were rarely washed, and we showered about once a week. Sometimes we would like to see how far we could push it. Um, I believe I made it about 15 days without a shower at one point. I was proud of myself. <laughs> but it's not something I would like to do again. <laughs> we were blessed to make it through our time there without having the water run out. However, other parts of the city were not so fortunate. Many times the refugee camps would run out of water, and three days after we left, the area of Bethlehem that we were in did run out of water. This reality changed the way we went about our everyday tasks. Eventually, we got used to it and gained a new perception of water consumption in the United States. But more importantly, the water shortage demonstrated the everyday impact that the occupation has. We also experienced a number of cultural difficulties in Palestine. Um, perhaps the most common frustration we faced was being offered different forms of hospitality. Everyone was incredibly generous, and so we were always being offered different things, usually food. However, in Palestine, it is not polite to accept what you are offered right away. There's a whole dance that goes on between the host offering something, the guest declining, saying they can't, the host offers again more emphatically, and so it just goes back and forth until 
you're supposed to know whether you accept or not. And there's a whole variety of variables that go in, what you're being offered, who's offering it, how many people are in your group. Um, and Palestinians understand when you're, you're supposed to accept or decline. However, as foreigners, we were terrible, just terrible at this. Um, so we're going to do a little skit now where Sarah will be um, the Palestinian offering us tea and we will respond. However, I will, I will narrate what, what is going through our heads with, with each response. Welcome, welcome. Would you like some coffee? We knew what to do. No, really, would you like some? She seems sincere, but we are trained for this. Really, it's okay. Have some coffee. It is at this point that we begin to lose our nerve. We don't really know what the right call is. Are we supposed to accept? Are we not? We feel like we're going to offend her either way we go. So we really have no choice but to look to Marcel for guidance. <laughs> However, by the end of our summer, uh, especially when Marcel wasn't there, we had developed our own method of hospitality. So Sarah is going to offer the group goat cheese and yeah, you'll see what happens. I bought you some goat cheese. Our response simply devolved into a mere acknowledgement that the offer existed. Yeah. Unfortunately, this accomplished nothing and only made our host unsure of whether we understood English or not. Hello, my name is Levi Smucker. When I was in Palestine, I wanted to seek out normal Israelis to talk with them. For me, it's significant to try to at least hear different voices wherever I go. Really, there seems to be a lot of normal, well-intentioned people in the world, and we certainly found this in Israel. Though we found the policies of the nation of Israel to be extremely oppressive, there was an alternative loving impulse present in Israeli citizens. Arab Israelis, ex-hippies, social workers, the Israeli Committee Against Housing Demolitions, progressive rabbis, peace activists, these were the kinds of people who we encountered on the other side of the wall who gave me some hope. We also simply wanted to understand the middle-of-the-road Israeli views, and Michael and Miller and I formed this goal that we became fixed on. It was, it was to go out to Jerusalem and find the moderate Israeli Jewish voice. And we found that in one, of, uh, in one man named Nissim. He was a gruff, middle-aged man in gym shorts walking his dog in a park. And we sidled up to him and asked him what was up. Uh, <laughs> we told him, we, he told us his story. His dad was from Morocco. His mother was from Spain. They moved to Israel close after its establishment. Nissim knew English because he spent several years in the United States. He seemed to like it in the United States because he could forget about the stresses of life. Um, in Israel, he said, there was just too much stress, too much news, and he was, he was sensitive. There was too many walls and too much security. He had, he had done military service in Jericho for three years, and he wishes that they didn't need so much security. 
but he also had the conviction that in recent years it kept out suicide bombers. In some way, I saw myself in Nissim. As an American, I'm always fighting the tendency to get swept away in this culture where we just forget the stresses of injustice. And while my country wages war, I only have a vague notion of exactly how that security helps me. I've never been to Iraq or Afghanistan, just as many young Israelis have never gone to the West Bank, except for military deployment. Also, on a long bus ride to Israel, I met Naomi. She was a 90-year-old woman who still had a young, bright spirit at an old age. She invited us to a peace demonstration in Jerusalem, and we ended up actually going. Naomi had moved to Israel in 1948 from South Africa. She was a young Jewish teenager with a lot of ideals, and she wanted to live in an intentional community there and share possessions. She had a strong desire for kinship with her Palestinian neighbors. And though she was Jewish and Israeli through and through, it really came out to us that she had a loving spirit. I also see myself in Naomi. If there's a good opportunity to start intentional community, I'd take it. Indeed, some of us have ancestors that took the opportunity to settle in Indiana to farm, even when sometimes as little as a decade before, all of the Native Americans had just been moved out, just as past Palestinians had been cleared for Jews. The unfortunate thing about me, though, is that it seems harder for me to reach out to Native Americans than it was for Naomi to relate to Palestinians. Another quite progressive Israeli woman I met found it incredible that I didn't personally know any Native Americans. It seems kind of crazy that I even have these ideals of justice, sustainability, community, peace, social equality, when at the same time, I'm not actively working to heal the unseen wrongs of the near past. This summer got me thinking a lot about the true merit behind intention. My name is Michael Miller. We went to Hebron, a large city in the south of the West Bank, twice. Hebron is the only West Bank city to have Jewish-Israeli settlements within the inner older city. One settlement is literally on top of Palestinian homes. The settlers throw trash and dirty water at the Palestinians walking below, and so the Palestinians have put up grates over the streets to catch the trash. Hebron is home to almost 200,000 Palestinians, but there are also 400 Israeli settlers in Hebron and over 1,000 Israeli soldiers. These soldiers were everywhere, looking out from rooftops, doing patrols of the streets where they would nervously run around and point their guns at people, like us, who were walking with Palestinians. Hebronites still cling to hope, but the settlements are taking over more of the city. One shopkeeper led Hannah and I uh, up to the second floor of his store, which had been decimated by the Israeli army. What was once the busiest street in Hebron, Shahada Street, is now closed to Palestinians, ruining the livelihoods of all the shopkeepers there. Their merchandise is still in the boarded-up stores. Since we were white and American, we were allowed to walk around in this street, and it was eerie. There were no Palestinians. The shop doors were barred shut with welded crowbars, stars of David and Hebrew slogans, spray-painted in red the visible signs of political and economic oppression. Hebron is home to the Ibrahimi Mosque, 
the burial place of Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Rebecca, Isaac, and Leah. An American-Israeli settler went on a shooting spree in the mosque in 1994, killing 29 Palestinian Muslims. After the rioting that followed the ho this horror, there was an order to take about a third of the mosque and turn it into a synagogue. The entire ancient building is surrounded by Israeli soldiers, and our Palestinian Christian friend Usama, who worked with us at WIAM, was not allowed into the synagogue section. Jews and Christians were allowed in, but not Palestinian Christians. The apartheid is thick in Hebron. Muslims in the Ibrahimi Mosque hearing Jews chant in the synagogue portion to the opposite side of the same tomb of their shared patriarch, Abraham. My name is Sarah Rohde. One of the places we got to visit through WM was a village near Hebron called Atuani, where two Christian Peacemaker team members were stationed. We climbed to a wooded hill near the village with one of the Christian Peacemaker team members, Joe Wise, a Goshen graduate. At first, I was very excited to be in a forest because I miss trees very much in Palestine. But then Joe told us that the trees were planted by the Jewish National Fund and were there largely to help the Israelis gain land. The Jewish National Fund plants trees on uncultivated land and then comes along and says, this land is ours, we planted a forest here. I hate that trees are used as a weapon of the occupation. From the hill, we could see the settlements near Atuani at the, and the path that the children have to take to school, past the settlement, escorted by Israeli soldiers so that the settlers don't hurt them. The settlers aren't arrested for harassing and harming the children. The children are given a military escort. One thing that Joe said that really stood out to me was that sometimes we normalize the violence of the occupation. We accept that, shepherds, that settlers attack shepherds on the shepherd's own land, that the settlements take another field from the village every year, that the Palestinians don't get enough water while the settlers have plenty. It is not okay that settlers are attacking children on their way to school. That should never be normal. That hit home. Joe also told us the story of how the village recently got electricity. They asked and petitioned the Israeli government that should provide basic necessities for an occupied population, but finally the Palestinian Authority helped them with funding for the Israelis would not. The villagers built all the pylons, those concrete things at the base of the poles, in preparation for the electric lines. They had them almost all done when the Israeli military came with bulldozers to demolish their work. The women of the village went out to meet the soldiers because the men would have been taken to jail immediately. The women stood in a line in front of the bulldozers protecting their electric pylons. There was only one female Israeli soldier present and all of the male soldiers told her to arrest the women. She walked up to them, looked at them for a long time and then turned around. The soldiers left. The Atuani men congratulated the women on scaring the soldier away. They said, no, we did not scare her. She looked into our faces and saw our humanity. Before our summer, we were all somewhat familiar with the conflict. However, I believe that many of us were of the assumption that what needed to happen was that both sides should get together and talk. If people of both countries could sit down together, then they could understand each other and the violence would end. We found out that this was a simplistic understanding. We have tried not to make this presentation very political. 
We do have political opinions and have no problem sharing them with you if you ask, but today we simply wanted to share our stories. However, it is not a matter of what you believe about the conflict, no matter who you think the land belongs to. What is happening is wrong. The segregation, the apartheid, and the violence are wrong. In Palestine, we found one organization after another dedicated to peace, working tirelessly through nonviolent means to bring an end to the occupation. However, on the side of the Israeli government, we found a little will for peace. Just like how it is all too easy for many of us to forget about the war in Afghanistan, immigration injustice, and poverty in our own country, it is easy for Israelis to forget about the occupation. They do not see it. It does not affect their everyday lives. So through the protection and funding from the United States, the government of Israel is able to continue their confiscation of Palestinian land and resources with little resistance from their national or global community. As of now, the occupation costs Israel nothing, so there's no incentive to stop. Yet what is happening is destructive for both Palestinians and Israelis. Palestinians live in constant anxiety as they see their homeland stripped away. And Israelis impose a militarized culture of fear on themselves that taxes their youth and devastates their environment. But despite this overwhelming situation, we saw glimmers of hope. From the intellectual seminars and the hippie love festival to organized nonviolent action and the simple gestures of hospitality we encountered all over Palestine, we found hope. Peace is possible, but it will not come if we stand idly by. If you would like to know more or have questions about what we have talked about today, please come and ask us. We are more than happy to listen and talk. Thank you, have a good day, and go in peace. <laughs>